or two an episode allow, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne In an age that has seen the wildest speculations of science come true, Jules Verne has gained stature both as a prophet and as one of the most exciting masters of the imagination the world has known. Of his amazing novels, none is more compelling and fascinating than 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This extraordinary voyage into the depths of the unknown aboard the fabulous submarine the Nautilus, built and commanded by the brilliant warped Captain Nemo, constitutes an exploration into both the possibilities of science and the labyrinth of the human mind. The novel is science fiction raised to the level of literature, and literature transformed into a vivid expression of a new era of technological breakthrough. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne Part 1 Chapter 1 A Shifting Reef The year 1866 was marked by a strange occurrence, an unexplained and inexplicable phenomenon that surely no one had forgotten. People living along the coasts and even far inland had been perturbed by certain rumors while seafaring men had been especially alarmed. Merchants, Shipowners, captains, and skippers throughout Europe and America, naval officers of many nations and governments on both continents, all were deeply concerned. The fact was that for some time a number of ships had been encountering on the high seas an enormous thing, described as a long spindle-shaped object that was sometimes phosphorescent and infinitely larger and faster than a whale. The facts concerning this apparition, which had been recorded in the logs of the various ships, agreed more or less as to the shape of the object or creature in question, the incalculable speed of its movements, its surprising power, and the strange thing with which it seemed to be endowed. If it was a cetacean, then it exceeded in size any that science had so far classified as such. Neither Cuvier nor La Cepede nor Dumerio, nor de Quatrefages would have admitted the existence of such a monster, unless they had seen it with the trained eye of the scientist. Taking an average of the observations made on various occasions, rejecting the hesitant estimates that gave this object a length of 200 feet, and discounting the exaggerated opinions that made it out to be one mile wide and three miles long, it could nevertheless be stated this phenomenal being was far bigger than anything that had been confirmed to date by the ichthyologists, if indeed it existed at all. The fact that it did exist was no longer deniable, and seeing that the human mind is always hankering after something to marvel at, the stir created throughout the world by this supernatural apparition will be well understood. As for relegating it to the realm of fable, that was out of the question. On the 20th of July, 1866, the steamer Governor Higginson of the Calcutta and Burnock Steam Navigation Company had met this moving mass five miles off the east coast of Australia. At first, Captain Baker thought it was an unknown reef. Just as he was preparing to establish its exact position, two jets of water projected by the mysterious object rose hissing 150 feet into the air. This meant that unless this reef had a geyser within it, the Governor Higginson was confronted by some sort of aquatic mammal, thus far unknown, which was capable of spouting columns of water mixed with air and vapor through its blowholes. The thing was also observed on the 23rd of July, 
of the same year in the Pacific by the Crystal Bell Colin of the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. Apparently, therefore, this extraordinary cetacean was able to move from one place to another with surprising speed, since within the space of three days the Governor Higginson and the Crystal Bell Colon had seen it at two points on the map separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues or at least 2,100 nautical miles. Fifteen days later, and about 6,000 miles from the last given position, the Helvetia of the Compagnie Nationale and the Shannon of the Royal Mail Company, sailing in opposite directions in that portion of the Atlantic, situated between the United States and Europe, signaled to each other that they had sighted the monster at 42 degrees 15 minutes north by 60 degrees 35 minutes west of the meridian of Greenwich, which this joint observation then estimated the minimum length of the mammal at more than 350 English feet, since it was longer than either the Shannon or the Helvetia, both of which measured over 300 feet from stem to stern. Moreover, it had to be borne in mind that the hugest whales, those found near the Alouettin, Kalamak, and Umgulich Islands, have never been longer than 180 feet, if that. These reports, coming in one after the other, with fresh observations made by the transatlantic ship La Pierre, news of a collision between the monster and the Etna of the Inman Line, an official memorandum drawn up by the officers of the French frigate La Normande, and highly objective survey made by the staff of Commodore Fitzjames on board of the Lord Clyde. All this greatly aroused public interest. In countries of volatile temperament, the phenomenon was the subject of many a joke, but serious-minded, practical countries like England, America, and Germany took the matter very seriously. In all the commercial centers, the monster was fashionable. It was sung about in the cafes, made fun of in the papers, and even represented on the stage. Reported as the yellow press took the opportunity to invent all sorts of wild stories about it. Some newspapers, short of something to write about, raked up all the gigantic imaginary creatures they could find from the white whale the terrible moby dick of the hyperborean regions to the huge kraken whose tentacles could enfold a five hundred ton ship and drag it down to the bottom of the ocean even the accounts found in ancient writings were revived the opinions of aristotle and pliny who admitted the existence of such monsters the norwegian tales of bishop pontipadin the reports of paul hegade and lastly the reports of mr harrington whose good faith may in no way be considered suspect when he says that in eighteen fifty seven on board the castillon he saw that the enormous serpent that had until then never been seen in many in any waters except those once navigated by the now defunct newspaper the constitutionale when an interminable controversy between the credulous and the incredulous exploded in all the learned societies and the scientific journals the question of the monster inflamed all minds journalists professing knowledge on scientific matters at odds with those laying claim to intellect spilled gallons of ink in the course of this memorable campaign some of them even drew a little blood for from talking about the sea serpent they shifted their ground all too easily to the most offensive personal slurs for six months the battle was waged to and fro with varying fortune to leading articles by the geographic institute of brazil the royal academy of sciences in berlin the british association the smithsonian institution in washington to discussion in the indian archipelago in the abbe moinos cosmos and in the petermans mythelungen 
as well as to scientific articles in the more important newspapers in France and abroad. The popular press reported with endless wit their humorist parodying a remark of Linnaeus, quoted by the adversaries of the monster to the effect that nature does not make fools, adjured their contemporaries not to give the lie to nature by admitting the existence of krakens, sea serpents, moby dicks, and other lucubrations of delirious sailors. Finally, to cap it all, in an article in a much-feared satirical journal, the most celebrated and popular of the editors struck at the monster as a legendary Hippolyte and dealt him a death blow amid a universal chorus of mirth, wit had vanquished science. During the first months of the year, 1867, the question seemed to have been buried for good and never likely to be raised again, when new facts were brought to the notice of the public. It was then no longer a question of scientific problem to be solved, but a real and genuine danger to be avoided. The question took a quite a different complexion. The monster again became a small island, rock, or reef. But if it was a reef, it was a shifting one, indeterminate and incomprehensible. On March 5, 1867, the Moravian of the Montreal Ocean Company, which was sailing in latitude of 27 degrees 30 minutes and a longitude of 72 degrees 15 minutes, struck with her starboard quarter a rock not marked in any chart of that part of the sea. Under the combined efforts of wind and 400 horsepower engines, it was going at the rate of 13 knots. There is no doubt but that the superior quality of her hull, the Moravian, would have broken under the impact and gone down with the 237 passengers she was bringing back from Canada. The accident had occurred at about five o'clock in the morning just as day was breaking. The officers of the watch hurried aft, where they scanned the sea with the greatest attention, but they could see nothing except a choppy area about three cables lengths away, as if the carpet-like surface of the water had been violently agitated. The exact bearings of the place were taken, and the Moravian continued on its course without apparent damage. Had it struck a submerged rock, or an enormous piece of drifting wreckage? No one could tell, but later, when the ship's bottom was inspected, they found that part of her keel had been broken. This incident, which was extremely serious in itself, might have been forgotten like so many others if the same thing had not happened three weeks later under identical circumstances. However, because of the nationality of the ship that had been a victim of this latest collision, and because of the reputation of the company to which it belonged, the occurrence had enormous repercussions. Everyone has heard the name of the famous English shipowner, Cunard. In 1840, this far-sighted industrialist, founded a postal service between Liverpool and Halifax, with three wooden paddle steamers, each of 1,162 tons and powered by 400 horsepower engines. Eight years later, the company's fleet was increased by the addition of 400-650 horsepower, 1,820-ton boats, and two years after that, by two other ships, both superior in power and tonnage. In 1853, the Cunard Company, whose privilege of carrying the mail had just been renewed, added successively to its fleet the Arabia, the Persia, the China, the Scotia, the Java, and the Russia, all first-rate ships, and the biggest after the Great Eastern, that had ever plowed the seas. Thus, in 1867, the company owned 12 ships, eight of them paddle steamers, and four of them propeller-driven. I have supplied these very brief details so that everybody may be well aware of the importance of this shipping line, known throughout the world for its intelligent management. No ocean-going company concern has ever been so well run. No business has ever been crowned with more success. Over the past 26 years, Cunard ships have crossed the Atlantic 2,000 times without as much as a voyage ever being missed. 
or any delay being recorded or a letter, man, or ship being lost. Moreover, in spite of the strong competition offered by France, passengers continue to choose the Cunard line in preference to all others, according to a survey of official records of recent years. When all this had been said, nobody will be surprised at the stir caused by the accident that happened to one of the company's finest steamers. On the 13th of April, 1867, the sea was calm and the wind moderate, and the Scotia was situated in a longitude of 15 degrees 12 minutes and latitude of 45 degrees 37 minutes. Her thousand horsepower engines were driving her along at a speed of 13 and a half knots. Her paddles were treading the waters with perfect rhythm and regularity. Her draft was 22 feet, and her displacement equal to 233,924.35 cubic feet. At 4.17 p.m., when the passengers were enjoying lunch in the great saloon, a slight shock was felt on the hull somewhere aft of the port paddle. The Scotia was not struck. She had been struck by something with a cutting or perforating edge. The collision had seemed so light that no one on board would have been alarmed but for the coal trimmers, who rushed up into the bridge shouting, "'We're sinking! We're sinking!' At first the passengers were all frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. Indeed, there was no question of any imminent danger, for the Scotia was divided into seven compartments by means of watertight bulkheads, and was thus able to withstand any leak. Captain Anderson immediately went down into the hold, where he found that the fifth compartment had been flooded and the water was coming in so fast that the leak must be a considerable one. Most fortunately, this compartment did not contain the boilers, otherwise the furnaces would have been extinguished at once. Captain Anderson had the engine stopped, and one of the sailors dived down to ascertain the extent of the damage. A few moments later, he found that there was a large hole two meters, or almost seven feet in diameter, in the bottom of the steamer. Such a leak could not be patched, so the Scotia, then 300 miles from Cape Clear, had to continue her course with paddles half-submerged. After three days' delay, which caused a considerable concern in Liverpool, she reached the company's shipyard. The engineer then proceeded to examine the Scotia, which had been put in dry dock, and they could scarcely believe their eyes. For there, some eight feet below the watermark, was a rent, shaped like an isosceles triangle. The break in the iron plates was so clean that it had—it could not have been more neatly done by a cutting machine. Obviously, the instrument had been produced. Such a perforation was not of a common stamp. Moreover, after having been driven home with a prodigious force to pierce iron plating one and a half inches thick, it must have withdrawn itself by means of a reverse motion that was utterly inexplicable. This new incident inflamed public opinion again. From then on, all accidents at sea that could not otherwise be accounted for were blamed on the monster. The fantastic creature had therefore to shoulder the responsibility for all shipwrecks. Moreover, the number of these is unfortunately considerable, for of the 3,000 ships whose loss is annually recorded by the Bureau Veritas, the number of craft, both steam and sail, presumed loss with all hands in the absence of any news is never less than 200. And now, of course, it was the monster who was justly or unjustly accused of their disappearance. As a result, travel between the continents was becoming more and more dangerous, and the public therefore demanded that the sea be purged of this dreadful cetacean at all cost, once and for all. Chapter 2. Pro and Con. At the time when these events occurred, I was returning from a scientific expedition to the bad lands of Nebraska in the United States of America, to which the French government had assigned me in my capacity of assistant professor at the 
Paris Museum of Natural History. After six months in Nebraska, I arrived in New York toward the end of March, laden with valuable collections. My departure for France had been fixed for the beginning of May. Thus, at the time of the Scotia incident, I was classifying my mineralogical, botanical, and zoological specimens. Of course, I was well informed on this topical question. How could I have been otherwise, having read about and reread all the American and European newspapers without having got any further toward an answer? The mystery intrigued me, and since it was impossible to form a definite opinion, I drifted from one extreme to the other. That there was something, there could be no doubt, and doubting Thomases were invited to put their hands into the wound in the Scotia. By the time I got to New York, the discussion had reached the boiling point. The hypothesis of a floating islet or an inapproachable reef which had been supported by people incompetent to judge, had now been completely abandoned, and indeed, unless this reef had an engine in its belly, how could it possibly move from place to place with such prodigious speed? The existence of a floating hull, a gigantic shipwreck, was rejected for the same reason. There remained only two possible solutions, and these created two distinct parties. On one side, those who believed in a monster of colossal strength, on the other, those who believed in a submarine vessel of enormous power. But this second hypothesis, plausible as it sounded, would not stand up to inquiries in both the old world and the new. It was not likely that a private individual could have such a machine at his command. Where and when might he have had it built? And how could he have kept its construction a secret? Only a government could possess such a destructive machine, and in these disastrous times, when man is daily striving to multiply the power of weapons of war, it's quite possible that some state was trying out this formidable contrivance unknown to all the others. After the chassepot breech loading rifles had come the torpedoes, after the torpedoes the submarine rams, and then the reaction. At least, so I hope. But the idea of an engine of war faded as one country after another issued a formal denial. Since the public interest was involved and oceanic con communications were affected, the honesty of the governments in question could not be doubted. Moreover, how could the construction of a submarine craft have escaped public notice? For to keep the secret under such circumstances would be very difficult for a private individual, while for a country whose every act was jealously watched by rival powers, it would certainly be impossible. Therefore, after inquiries had been made in England, France, Russia, Prussia, Spain, Italy, America, and even in Turkey, the hypothesis of a submarine monitor was definitely rejected. So once again, the monster came to the surface of the debate. In spite of the endless jokes to which it was subjected by the popular press, those whose imagination very soon began to run riot with the most absurd invented sea creatures. Upon my arrival in New York, several people had done me the honor of asking me for my opinion. In France, I had published a two-volume work on the mysteries of the great ocean depths, which had been particularly well-received in the world of science, thus turning me into a specialist of this rather obscure branch of natural history. So my opinion was sought. As long as I was able to ignore the facts of the case, I took refuge in the absolute skepticism. However, very soon I found I had my back to the wall and was forced to make a definite statement. Even the Honorable Pierre Aranax, professor of the Museum of Paris, was called upon by the New York Herald to venture some sort of appraisal. So I spoke out. I did so because I was unable to hold my tongue. I discussed the questions in all its aspects, political and scientific. Here is the peroration of my article, which was printed in the issue of the 30th of April. Therefore, after examining the various hypotheses one by one, I said, 
All other suppositions have been rejected. We are forced to admit the existence of a marine creature of enormous power. The deepest parts of the ocean are completely unknown to us. Soundings have been unable to reach them. What goes on in those remote depths? What creatures can live twelve or fifteen miles below the surface of the water? What sort of organisms do these animals possess? It is almost impossible to imagine. However, the solution of the problem put to me is obviously affected by the shape of the dilemma itself. Either we know about all the varieties of creatures that inhabit our planet, or we do not. If we do not know them all, if nature still holds secrets for us in the fields of ichthyology, nothing is more reasonable than to admit the existence of fishes or cetaceans, or even of new species or types, living in a special environment at the bottom of the sea at depths inaccessible to our surroundings and that some incident, some fantastic occurrence, or, if you will, some whim, brings up the upper surface of the ocean from time to time, and at long intervals. If, on the other hand, we do know all the living species, then we shall have to look for the animal in question among the lists of marine life already catalogued. In that case, I should be inclined to decide on the existence of a giant narwhal. The common narwhal, or sea unicorn, often attains a length of 60 feet. Multiply this by 5 or even 10, give the cetacean strength proportionate to its size, increase its offensive weapons accordingly, and you may have the animal we are looking for. It would have the proportions established by the officers of the Shannon, the instrument needed to pierce the Scotia's side, and the power necessary to damage a steamer's hull. The narwhal is armed with a kind of ivory sword, or halberd, as some naturalists call it. It is a sort of main tooth, or tusk, hard as steel. Some of these tusks have been found embedded in the bodies of whales, which the narwhal always attacks with success. Others have been extracted, not without difficulty, from the bottoms of ships, which they had pierced right through, as a gimlet pierces a barrel. The Museum of the Faculty of Medicine in Paris has one of these weapons, which is seven feet long and eighteen inches wide at the base. Now suppose the weapon to be ten times stronger and the animal ten times more powerful. Launch it at a speed of twenty miles an hour, multiply its mass by the square of its speed, and you will obtain an impact capable of producing the damage in question. Thus, until we have fuller information, I will opt for a uni sea unicorn of colossal dimensions, armed not with a halberd, but with a real, real spur, similar to the armor-plated frigates, or the rams used in a war, possessing both the mass and the motive power of the latter. This would be an explanation for this inexplicable phenomenon, unless, of course, there be something else beyond anything that we have ever surmised, seen, or felt, or experienced, which is still possible. These last words were somewhat cowardly on my part, but up to a point, I wanted to preserve my dignity as a professor and not to give the Americans a chance to laugh, for when they laugh, they certainly do it in style. So I was leaving myself a way out. After all, I was in effect admitting the existence of the monster. My article was hotly debated, which meant that it caused quite a sensation and gained a number of supporters. The solution that it proposed at least left plenty of scope to the imagination. 
the human mind delights in grand visions of supernatural beings, and the sea is their very best medium, the only environment in which such giants, compared to which land animals, such as the elephant and rhinoceros, are like dwarves, tend to be produced and developed. The sea bears within it the largest species of known mammals, and perhaps it is also conceals mollusks of incomparable size, crustaceans too fearful to contemplate, such as 300-foot lobsters or crabs weighing 200 tons. Why not? Long ago, in distant geological ages, land animals, birds, apes, quadrupeds, and reptiles were developed on an enormous scale. The creator had cast them in a huge mold, which time gradually reduced. Why should the sea, in its unknown depths, not have conserved some of these gigantic specimens of the life of another age? For apparently, the sea never changes, while the earth is continually undergoing mutations. Why should the sea not conceal within its bosom the last of these titanic species, for which the years are but centuries, and the centuries millennia? But I have allowed myself to be carried away by dreams that I ought no longer to indulge in. Enough of these fantasies that time has now changed for me into terrible reality. I repeat, opinion thus crystallized as to the nature of the phenomenon and the, and the public acknowledgement without dispute, the existence of a prodigious creature that had nothing in common with the fabulous sea serpents. While some people saw this as opposing a purely scientific problem, others, who were more practical, especially in America and England, were of the opinion that the ocean should be purged of this redoubtable monster in order to ensure the safety of transoceanic communications. Industrial and commercial journals dealt with the question mainly from this point of view. The Shipping and Mercantile Gazette, the Lloyd's List, the Paquebot, the Revue Maritime et Coloniale, all papers dealing with insurance companies which were threatening to raise their premiums were unanimous on this point. Thus, public opinion had spoken, and the United States of America was the first to declare its attentions. Preparations were therefore made in New York to fit out an expedition to pursue the narwhal. A high-speed ice-breaking frigate, the Abraham Lincoln, was made ready to take to the sea as soon as possible. The arsenals were opened to Commander Farragut, who hastened to arm his ship. However, as it is often the case, once it has been decided to give chase to the monster, monster failed to appear. For two months it was not heard of. No ship encountered it. It seemed as though the sea unicorn knew about the plots that were being hatched against it. After all, there had been so much talk about it, even over the transatlantic cable. Some wits alleged that the crafty creature no doubt had intercepted a cablegram and was now reaping the benefit of it. Thus the frigate was armed to fight a long-distance campaign and equipped with formidable fishing equipment, but no one knew where it should go. Impatience was growing when, on the 2nd of July, it was learned that the Tampico, a steamer of the San Francisco-Shanghai line, had sighted the animal three weeks before in the North Pacific. The news caused the greatest excitement, and Commander Farragut was given less than 24 hours to get ready. The ship was laden with food and provisions, and the holds overflowed with coal. Not a member of the crew was missing from his post. All that needed to be done was to kindle the furnaces, stoke up, and weigh anchor. Half a day's delay would have been unforgivable, although it must be said that the commander Farragut asked nothing better than to get going. Three hours before the Abraham Lincoln was to leave its Brooklyn pier, I received a letter couched in the following terms. To Monsieur Aranax, professor at the Museum of Paris, Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York. Sir, if you wish to join the expedition of the Abraham Lincoln, the government of the Union will be pleased to see France represented by you in this enterprise. Commander Farragut reserved a cabin for your use. 
Yours very cordially, J.B. Hobson, Secretary of the Navy. Questions to consider after reading. What do you think of the opening line of the book? The year 1866 was marked by a strange occurrence, an unexplained and inexplicable phenomenon that surely no one has forgotten. What do you think of the fear of being spread by the monster? What do you think of the world's hypothesis that this is a monster of colossal strength or a submarine vessel of enormous power? Professor Aranax is our narrator. Do you think he will be a reliable narrator? The Abraham Lincoln will give chase and Professor Aranax is invited. How long do you think it will take to find the monster? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.